All right, this is The Yay. I'm Reg Clay. This is The Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. We have two guests. We have Deborah Murphy and David Blair. How are you, David? All right, we'll uh, pull the mic up for you. Um, it's, you know, Norman and David are sharing mics. But uh, we're happy to have you. We are a small enterprise. <laughs> right, exactly. Um... And uh, you guys are doing, I'm trying to bring up my computer up, um, it is Olivia's Kitchen, Olivia's Kitchen, or What the Cook Saw at the Twelfth Night. There it is, on Twelfth Night. And that's being played at um, Fort Mason. Uh, the company is called Generation Theater, is that right? That's right. All righty. It's at Southside Theater, Building C, is it? It's Building, it's uh, I think it's Building D. Yep. So that's fantastic. We'll learn more about the uh, Generation Theater and about the two of you. But first, uh, as I open up every podcast, how was your uh, week? I got girls coming so hey! <laughs> Yeah, tell us about it. I auditioned for SF Shakes. Yeah, pretty close. I, I auditioned for SF Shakes and um, for As You Like It. And mm-hmm. I got cast. I'll be playing Touchstone and Adam. Right on, right on. Why don't you go ahead and pick up the mic, and you, and you guys will just, you can take it out. You can take it out of the thing. I don't want to hold the mic. You don't want to hold the mic? No. Okay, never mind. I'll lean in. Okay. We'll lean in. Okay. Cause la, 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 la. There you go, there you go. Yeah, because you had been talking about the casting, and you said you couldn't announce it, but now you can announce it. Well, yeah, because in, in a real world where you're actually getting paid some money, they have to decide whether or not, mm-hmm. you know. If they're paying enough money, then they can ask you to give them, give you their whole day. And if they're not paying enough money, well, most people in theater across America have other jobs. Of course, of course. So the offer is sweet and wonderful and confirms that you are, in fact, a talented person. Mm -hmm. But can we make that deal work? Because I have some jobs that are lined up, so I've got some jobs I'll get to hold on to and some jobs it looks like I may have to let go of. But what I loved was the uh, flexibility around it. I said... I really want to hold on to this June job, depending on what our rehearsal hours are. And I got back. We're still working out hours. I said, what I said was, I'm available, period. I'm right. available. Right. But if you can set the hours so that I can do my other job, mm-hmm. that would be great. And if not, then there's enough time between now and June I can find somebody to come. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they liked you enough to make the flexibility to make everything right. For you. I get, the cast is amazing. Oh, yeah, you get to work with Glenn Loeb, right? Glenn Loeb, yes. Yeah. Um, who we just saw this summer at Livermore Shakes mm-hmm. in um, The Importance of Being Earnest. And she's just, she's an amazing Bay Area talent. I saw her a couple of years ago at Playground, I think it was three years ago now. Um, and I was like, who is this woman? And then I started paying attention, and apparently she's everywhere doing all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so now she will play Audrey to my touchstone. Right on. Yeah, we, we were happy to have her. It was a while back, but she was on the A. And, uh, yeah, she was a great presence. Um, I can't right. wait to see her on stage. Oh, she's incredible. I'm like, oh, i, I got to bring my A game. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, well, let's jump into current events because we have a lot to talk about with uh, Gwen and David. Um, the only thing is Virginia, Virginia, Virginia. I mean, it's it's getting crazy. I'm, I'm stunned about the whole blackface thing. We talked about it last week. I can't believe that we're still talking about this stuff in 2019. That we have to explain to people why and how this is wrong, and your ignorance of it yeah. is no excuse. It's not yeah. like, oh, gosh, I have a, 
a Nazi swastika on my arm. I didn't mean anything. Okay, it's bad. No need to discuss this. It's bad. If you need the history, here's the history. It's bad. We agree. It's bad. Done. That said, Mm -hmm. I don't want that guy out. Oh. I don't. Now, is it a Democrat-Republican thing? Because, you know, these... Go ahead. Partly. It's a... I love the way somebody framed it, because somebody said... This isn't about right or wrong. This isn't a partisan issue. This is about, you know, basically this whole no uh, zero tolerance yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Uh, this happened in 84. Yes. A long time ago. Mm-hmm. People who knew about it then didn't care. Mm-hmm. People who've known about it his whole career <coughs> didn't care. Yeah. They voted for him. They voted the man yeah. governor. Deborah and David, did you hear about this stuff? Yeah. We, get, we do talk about current events. The thing that I find amazing, I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, the whole, you know. So here's my point. Go ahead. I want them to say, okay, if this is so bad Mm -hmm. that we need to get this guy out, and and I'm willing to concede that, okay, it's bad. So, yeah, yeah, maybe we need to get him out. Is there anybody else? In the Virginia legislature, yeah. that we should look at before we do this. How many dominoes need to fall? Because you know, if he had it, yep. and he's liberal by Virginia standards, yep. there's a whole lot of Republicans, and so that's where we get partisan. Exactly. If you want, just like with Franken, mm-hmm. Franken, Franken yeah. good or bad? Well, one, you didn't bother to go through any real process. You mm-hmm. just said he had to go, mm-hmm. and to his credit, he went. But did anybody else go? They're still catching people. Yeah. And they just quietly disappear yeah. or they sweep it under the rug. Yeah. No, if the governor is going, everybody has any association. You know, the thing, the underlying thing that isn't talked about is the Republicans, I mean, the Republican, they must, they, I guess there are groups that hunt and look for material to attack you if you're a Democrat right. and you're a progressive and all that sort of stuff. Right. And so someone dug and found this stuff. Now, we have the governor who did blackface for whatever reason because he was young and dumb. We have another, I think it was the attorney general. Well, actually, we don't know that he did blackface because he says that wasn't a picture of him. But he did it and he did something else. So it could be him in the hood. (laughs) Oh, well. It's it's, it's, it's just really, really crazy. And And that his justification was, I didn't, that wasn't me, but I did do that. Yeah. Deborah, I have a question for you um, because, you know, we're dealing with this in America, and I know in other countries there's not a lot of um, how should I say it? it it's it's not such a big deal. Like, you know, like, we talk about square well, tape heat. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, just race sensitivity. I know you're from Peru, or you did uh, extensive work in Peru. Um, is there such an, is there a, an issue with, I guess, racial sensitivity, or, because I hear about, you know, in Europe, let's go into a football game, a soccer football game, and in Europe, and people are, you know, they're castigating black people or whatever. Is, was that common in South America when you were there? I mean, yeah. Um, I haven't been there since 98, so I don't know how it is now. Sure. But um, the racial problem over there is everybody wants to be white. Uh, yeah. Um, if you have blue eyes, blonde hair, you're cast mm. automatically. It doesn't matter if you're talented or not. Yeah. So that's the, the issue that we have over there. We have a lot of... Uh, black people, we have a lot of indigenous people, and, you know, it's it's okay. We don't hear the 
racial problems that we have in America with our black people yeah. over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's different. Like, I've never heard of black face, honestly, until mm-hmm. this year. And I was like, what does that mean? Interesting. And, you know, I heard about it. I mean, the Internet nowadays, you can just Google it and sure. learn about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's bad. And I didn't even grow up here, and I know that's bad. Sure. Um, but, yeah, there is racial problems over there. Yeah. Um, different than here, but they exist over yeah. there. David Valer, I had a, uh, I'll ask you the same thing because you – you live one part of your life in France. I think you grew up in France, and then you spend your next half here, not only here in the Bay Area, but also in film and television. You have a very, very extensive background, and I'm sure you have had some experience with just race relations in general. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, I guess, the fact that we're talking about blackface in 2019? I'm completely amazed that this is still an issue. It shouldn't exist anymore. I mean, it shouldn't even be should have been resolved long, long ago, and yeah. it shouldn't come as a surprise. That, but um, my background is I'm Jewish, so mm-hmm. being Jewish in France uh, is not necessarily a, a walk in the park. Sure. Um, being Muslim in France is not a walk in the park. Uh, being, you know, uh, of African or, or West Indian descent is not a walk in the park. It, but it's different from here, it, not necessarily in terms of, um, I, think, I think here, the, the history of the U.S. and, and, the, and slavery has, has bears heavily on, yes. on the race relation issues. Mm-hmm. In France, the, it's not an equivalent, but the, what, what rises to high intensity in terms of race, race relations is the history of, of colonialism. Yeah. And, you know, in Muslim countries, in African countries, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the racism against, against um, black people was less until recently. It was less uh, accentuated than against mm-hmm. Muslims, for example. Yeah. Just because of because of numbers, mm-hmm. and also because... And I'm sure migration has a lot to do with it, right? Migration had a lot to do with it, but, and, but also the fact that, for example, the, the French West Indies mm-hmm. are, are, are part of France. They're not... It, it's, a, it's a département. It's a, yeah. It's a, so um, so that, that was... You know, it, it, there, there was never an issue with that. But, for example, the, the visibility of the minorities... Mm-hmm. Was it, it was absolutely ridiculous until recently. You had no um, no person of African or West Indian descent uh, on television. Um, yeah. You had no you had no North African person on television. Yeah. Um, if they if they were invisible. They, they and I'm sure that was the same thing happened in Peru. I'm sure you saw no dark skinned person on television. Right. Yeah. I mean, we do have um, a wonderful artist. She's a singer actress. Her name is Eva Ayon. Mm-hmm. Um, she's black. Yeah. You know, so, and that's uh, really quickly the one thing that we embrace that culture in Peru. So it's more with the indigenous people. Oh, they feel that racism. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's it's. Um, I'm always curious because you know we're insulated as Americans as to what's happening out in the rest of the world, as if the universe revolves around the USA. And I'm always curious as to see what it is being black, but also just a minority. Period in other countries. But it's it's interesting that it's all coming out pretty much at the same time, right. in different ways. Yes, it's all, it's all exploding. And yeah, it, and that's. That may be a very good thing. That now you know everything is on the table. Yeah. And let's let's do something seriously. Sure. And finally about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Norman is busy on his phone. <laughs> the only other thing. Did you have anything more to add to that? Well, the other leg of it is yes. that the lieutenant governor is is in serious trouble. This and is the sexual harassment. Sexual no, harassment. no, the rape. Well. No, the first one was sexual harassment. Okay. The second one apparently is being claimed rape. I haven't heard any details on that one yet. Yeah. Um, the few details that came out on the first one, mm-hmm. what you need from a politician is how do they deal with the situation? Because yeah. in a perfect world, you can come up with a you know this utopian vision of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. How do you make it happen? Yeah. And the issue is how do you deal with the obstacles and, and problems that come up? He's being accused of something. His response was to say, no, not true. And I was like, okay, let's break it down. Were you at the convention? That's really easy to look up. You, you were at the convention. Mm-hmm. Were you at the convention with her? Yeah. She's in a hotel, and you went up to her room. Yep, yep. I, I've heard some details on that. Through. Right, so yeah. all these details yeah. that she has said, are you claiming none of that is true? And she admits to consensual kissing. Are you saying that didn't happen either? Here's the story that I heard. Now, she is a professor, and she speaks specifically on sexual harassment and women's issues. And she's talked about being um, traumatized right. by sexual harassment <clears throat> Excuse me, when she was a child. She says that she and he went upstairs to his room because he had to get some papers right. for her. He kissed her. She was stunned, but it was consensual because yes. I guess she liked him or something like that. Then she says he forced her to have oral sex, right. and she did it while crying. Right. And then she didn't say or do anything to say anything to anyone about it right. up until now. So that's right. 2004. Right. That's Kerry's, uh, you know, yeah. Bush's re-election against Kerry yeah. all the way up to now. So I guess, you know, a question would be why, why now? And is it feasible that it could have been consensual and she would do something like this? She does, it doesn't well, sound like she would do anything like that. Okay, so number one, why now? Mm-hmm. She said, oh, my God, if you saw the, uh, the tweet, yeah. it's pretty clear. Yeah. She sent a message to a friend saying, oh, my God, so what if something bad happened to you? And that guy then went on to achieve, sure. you know, um, significant office, and now it looks like he's about to get a big promotion. Mm-hmm. That was a private message. Yeah. And the woman said, can I share this? And she said, sure. Yes. So she wasn't trying to, but she was triggered mm-hmm. by the fact of what's going on in the news. It's like the news is in your face. <coughs> you had this horrible thing. You've survived it. You've dealt with it as best you can, and now it's in your face again. Yeah. And all you do is comment on it. She didn't go after him. She just commented to somebody who was like, oh, wait. This is big. Can we take your personal thing and put it out there? Yeah. No, I totally understand. And I want to piggyback that news because it deals with women's issues, the Me Too movement, with the recent ruling by the Supreme Court to block the Louisiana court. So basically, to make a long story short, there's a, uh, I wish I had the name of it, but there's a 
there's Louisiana and there are lots of other southern states that want to block abortion doctors from right. performing abortions by right. basically saying you have to have a credential or you have to be near a hospital that has a credential. Miles of a hospital. Right, exactly. And in Louisiana, only one doctor in right. all of the state of Louisiana right. um, correlates with this or right. you know, can has that credential. Has that yeah. credential. So obviously, this is a way of stopping abortion. Right. The Supreme Court blocked it, and this is something that we were wondering what was going to happen in the age of Kavanaugh right. and Neil Gorsh. Right was in power. Luckily, Judge Roberts voted in favor with the liberals to say, no, this law is a bit funny. You know, we're going to block this block. But all of this deals with the Me Too movement. I mean, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, yet another allegation of sexual harassment, plus the Supreme Court deciding what a woman will do with their body. Um, Debbie, what do you think about all of this? And uh, I guess being a woman, also being a woman, You've been in um, in America for a while now, but you can make a comparison between, you know, where you were and where you are. What do you think about what's going on? Oh, boy. Where do I start? <laughs> um, something I wanted to say about the why now question. Sure. I think that question should be why not now. Sure, sure. You know, it doesn't matter when it happened. It happened. Yeah. Um, and we all have personal reasons why we keep it quiet. You know, yeah. and and so that should be eliminated from the vocabulary of why now is no. Right. Good, you, you, you spoke up good. doesn't matter when. Um, funny about that um, abortion sure. thing that we were talking about. One of the places that I was in last year mm-hmm. with B8 Theater was Reaper oh, Rights. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was about women's reproduction rights. Yeah. Um, I was born and raised Catholic, mm-hmm. so big taboo. Don't talk about that. Oh, my God, no, don't even mention it. I was not educated on that mm-hmm. until I got cast to be in that play. Because wow. I, I played a woman that was having an abortion, abortion, um, and I played a Latino woman um, that was treated like a chicken, you know, mm. Um, and, uh, basically my roles were pro, mm-hmm. right? And being raised and grow, and grow up as a Catholic, you know, I really had to ask myself a lot of questions about what I was doing sure. as an actor and what I was really standing up for as an actor and human being in these, um, subjects. Yeah. And I learned a lot, and I was so angry. Like, how dare you tell me what to do with my body? Yeah. You know, yes, I was born raised in Catholic. It might not be something that I would do, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the women should not have the choice. Sure. You know, to do it. And being told by men, mm-hmm. you know, that they don't have ovaries, they don't know what it's like right, at all. At yeah. all. Um, <laughs> They're not going to be the mothers. You know, I mean, there yeah. are men that are mothers to their children. But sure. in this situation, they're not going to bear the child. They can just bail yeah. and leave you with the child. And, you know, so many circumstances, so many situations that a woman may not feel that it's the right thing for her mm-hmm. then, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, yes, you can have the baby and, and, and put the baby up for adoption, but that's another whole 
situation and issue that I was not aware that just trying to adopt a kid in America is very difficult. And there are so many children that need adoption. It's, you know, so it should be an option for women. And women should have the say. Mm-hmm. you know, about what to do with their bodies and in these situations. Yeah, you know? and one thing that isn't talked about when we talk about abortion is the fact that there are plenty of men who will have sex with women, who will not take responsibility and impregnate a woman, and, you know, we, we don't even talk about it. So, you know, when I hear from conservatives who are like, well, listen, it's a produce, precious, whatever, a woman doesn't even have the choice even before right. abortion, even during sex. I mean, even a, even a wife may say, hey, listen, be careful. I don't want to have a child right now. I mean, these things are just not very rarely are they discussed. Um, David Valer, do you have, um, I don't know, any opinions at all about? The only thing that, that I could uh, speak of is the fact that it was a 5-4 decision. Yeah. And that uh, it, to me, this looks like um, fly fishing. You know, you try one spot, sure. and it doesn't work, so you're going to try another. Yeah. So I think we should expect a series of cases that are going to learn from this particular decision and mm-hmm. try to cast it slightly differently, cast mm-hmm. the law slightly differently, because apparently Justice Kavanaugh is voting, uh, you know. Of course. Again, I mean, he's, he's well, that's just, yeah, that shouldn't be a shock at all, yeah. And, and it's clearly, so now we have four justices who are ready mm-hmm. under slightly different circumstances to, to support the law and mm-hmm. we have Justice Roberts who in this particular case said no mm-hmm. but who knows what is the configuration that could make him say yes. Right, exactly or what new case will be brought up. Right. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Brown v. Board of Education where the NAACP would have these lawsuits that they had been filing really from the turn yeah, of the yeah, century yeah, yeah. until they found a justice that would actually push it in favor. I don't want to compare Brown v. Board of Education to Roe v. Wade or the abolition of Roe v. Wade, but that's what the conservatives are doing. They're pushing these lawsuits to see what will work, what doesn't work. Well, I think it's a valid comparison because that's what's going on. The court, everybody wants to pretend like we've got this constitution, like it's written in stone, and the court is this body that decides things, and that's the law. And it's the law because we agree it's the law. Yeah. Whether it's right or wrong, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, um, what's the, um, you know, all the cases before that, um, what's the, um, uh, I can't even think of it, Ferguson, uh, not Ferguson, uh, Plessy. Plessy Ferguson, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, you know, there are all kinds of cases where the Supreme Court went, no, you're a slave. Yep, and exactly. And this, it's been talked about before. We don't, we, you know, yeah. we've already dealt with this. Right. So, yeah. no, you know, the Supreme Court is a fluid body. Mm-hmm. They change, their configuration changes, and therefore the law changes yeah. to reflect our culture. Yeah. And it's usually a few decades behind. And I just, I say, Ruth Bacon Ginsburg, stay healthy. Stay, stay, stay healthy. Um, I want her to have a, a private meeting with him. Well, not private. I want somebody else there to witness it. And I want her to offer to step down if he'll pick somebody that she likes. Well, he can make a promise, but how many promises has he broken? That's what I'm saying. There's yeah. somebody in the room that says, once you nominated that person, then I'll step down. Mm, yeah. <laughs> two, more, two more years since she can step down. Let's wait for the new person to come in. Let's hope. <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? Okay, and with that, let's bring in Deborah Murphy and uh, David Valer. Um, and... 
Generation Theater. Uh, let's get an origin story. Um, you told me a little bit off mic um, your origins, how you came here, but I'd like for the audience to hear. We'll begin, uh, Deborah, ladies first. Um, how did you uh, come to the Bay Area Theater? How did you come into theater, period? Oh, my God. Okay. So my parents, um, my mom mainly is from the circus. Okay. Wow. So background, you know, artists um, in the family. My grandmother used to be a singer. My, my grandfather's still a singer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was born with the bug. Okay. <laughs> and where were you born and raised? I was born in San Miguel de Tucumán in Argentina. Okay. And I was raised in Lima, Peru. All right. When you when I hear Argentina, I almost I automatically think of the Peron family. Yeah. Were, were they were they in power when you were born? No. Okay, got it. After? Uh, before. Before. Before I was born. Yeah. Okay. So I I was interested in you know what it was like living under the Peron regime, but you may have been too young. And, and I never really lived in Argentina. Okay. Yeah. So I was born, and then because of the circus, we lived in in Brazil for. Four or five years, oh, then okay. went to Peru. Got it. Um, my grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer, so mm-hmm. we decided to move the family to sure. Peru. Um, and then from Peru, I moved here. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Um, now, were you now? That's you were involved in the circus, but um, did you? When did you actually do theater? Get on stage. I got on stage in '96. Um, the first play that I ever did was a musical. It was Peter Pan, a okay. musical. Um, and, you know, I when I went to audition, uh, the director was the son of my mom's friend. Okay. And they all knew I wanted to do acting, and they're like, you know, why don't you just go and talk to him and see if you can be a um, what do they call them? Um, I'm an usher. An usher. Okay. So I went there to interview mm-hmm. for an usher. Okay. And I got there, and uh, they say, here are the sites. Get on stage and do these. Oh, wow. I was like, okay. Someone saw something in you. And funny, because uh, they created this character. Um, you know how... Um, um, the Peter Pan kids, I, I don't remember the name of the family. They had a dog. Wendy, yeah, they had a dog. Yeah. So we couldn't have a dog on stage, so they decided to create a character for me, and they made me the French maid of the captain. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, like, fake my French <laughs> accent. Um, so that was my first um, show ever. And then from there, I got cast uh, to be in Cinderella with another theater mm-hmm. group, and I played one of the mean sisters. Um, and then I moved here, took a long break, and my first show in America was uh, Medea, okay. the uh, Greek yeah. with College of Marine. I want to say Euripides, no, Euripides, I think. I think it was Euripides. Or Sophocles. No, Sophocles, I think. Okay. But in any case, yes, Medea. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, I have... With what that was with College of Marin. Oh, College of Marin. Yeah. yeah. Right on. Um, and, David, I'll ask you the same thing. And I'm going to ask you to um, – you can bring the mic up or, or what have you. Yeah. But um, because you have an extensive theater and arts uh, background. So go ahead. I'll let you – Excuse me. I'm old. <laughs> we're, we're all getting there. I'll be 50 in June. So go ahead. Congratulations. Um, I – well, I, I grew up in France. I was uh, – my parents were – actors, and then they worked in television, mm-hmm. most of them, and then the rest of my family is 
they're all in music. My brother and my sister are both musicians, mm -hmm. professional musicians. So I, yeah, I grew up in that, and uh, and then I decided to to stop because I was I was writing for television when I was in my twenties, and it was actually not very interesting. It was, was this American television or French television? It was French television. Okay. I was writing for French television. Okay, okay. Drama that was filmed and things. Very like nice. That. But it. The, the, the offers were not very interesting, and it, I, I got really tired of it. And I, so I said to my dad, I'm just going to go back to go to the university and study, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he said, well, how are you going to finance that? And I said, well, you know, I, somebody offered me a job as an insurance salesman, so I'm going to sell insurance policies. And my dad uh, said, oh, my God, what am I going to tell my friends? Uh, yeah, the son was you know, going to be in <coughs> university, and that was, by our standards, that was bad. I, mean, mm -hmm. I was not going to be on stage. Was yeah. He was a little bit embarrassed with his mm -hmm. friends mm -hmm. because I was studying and not trying to be an actor. So I did that. Uh, it, it, was, it was like the, you know, the traditional story you hear, but backwards. Sure, sure. Um, and so I did that. I, then I taught in the French university, and then I became a lawyer here, and then I stopped being a lawyer, and I started writing for the theater again, and in 2008, I founded with other people the Generation Theater. Yeah. I do have a quick question. Um, I'm fascinated because I, <clears throat> you know, we wrote Foreman in Paris, which talked about Paris, but it wasn't just about the expatriates, but also Paris in post-war Europe. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any, uh, if you can talk about it, maybe your parents, but I just, what was life like, I guess, because uh, I don't know how old you are, but I'm thinking maybe 20 years after the war ended. Um, was there any residual effect of the aftermath of the war that you could see as a child in France? I, I, I would say there's a residual effect of the Second World War today yeah. in, in France. It's, it, the Second World War is... is Omnipresent mm. in in the way the French people think. Yeah, it's everywhere. Uh, just like the British, actually, they they also have that sort of memory that that lingers, and a, a lot of issues are still there from mm. the Second World War. So mm. to go back to your question, that right after the war, it, there was very little to eat when I grew up. Mm. It, was, it was difficult for everybody. And it was um, there was a lot of cooperation between people, and, and not not much intolerance. It was there was this kind of grace period where everybody was so fed up mm. with what had happened during the war and, and all of the you know the collaboration with the Germans, the deportations, etc., etc. Yeah. The fifties were were a, a sort of a, a much softer period. Very, you know, the economy was really bad. It was growing. Sure. A lot of it thanks to the Marshall Plan. Yeah. But it was getting better. Uh, but but it was it was a very um, upbeat period. It, oh. I live in. I, I was born in Paris and I lived in Paris. And it mm -hmm. was, Paris was a really pleasant, upbeat. Yeah. Place. Well, it sounds like you had a good childhood, a fun childhood. I had a very good childhood. We were extremely poor. But it was it was it was not not 
good memories about about everything. You know, not enough to eat, but apart from that, everything was good. Yeah. <laughs> now, Norman, I know last year, I think it was last year, for the Lucy Berlin stories, you guys went to Paris. We went to Paris, and then we traveled to a couple of towns. Yeah. yeah. Did you notice any... Um, I don't know. Just did anything remind you? Oh wow! This 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 was a f- town that was occupied by by Nazi Germany. You mean like the highway being named after American generals and stuff uh, like that? Uh, like, yeah. There was that. And, yeah. But what to me what was even more fascinating because it tells you something about a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Angers and we were staying with host families. So I'm in this little host family in this river region, mm-hmm. gorgeous little place. And our host says she's going to the farmer's market tomorrow to get some stuff. She wants to get some really fresh stuff. They told them to, the host families, to impress us with what was specific to their regions. Mm. So I'm like, oh, you're doing farmer's markets. That's great. We, you know, just been doing that in the last, oh, 20 years or so in America. That's starting to become a big thing. How long have you guys been doing it? And she goes, how long it's been here? And we started talking and realized eventually that, like, this is a town that existed before France was a country, before it was part of France, you know, hundreds of years. There's always been a farmer's market. There's never not been a farmer's market. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like such an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. So what if you're the culture, like, um, to put it in an American perspective, what if you were California? What if you were some, or even more than that, what if you were a native who grew up here, watched the Spanish come through, the Mexicans take over, and then these Americans sure. reform the manifest destiny, yeah. You know, so I'm looking at this and going, wow, the French have this, you know, right down the street are buildings that are hundreds of years old within blocks of so many places. Sure. Um, and yet there are highways, and yet, and you know, and solar stuff and all mm-hmm. kinds of things going on. And yeah. Weird regulations that are maybe even advanced of what we're doing in America. And, like, and all of this is part of who you are, what your culture is. Yeah. Very different. It's a mixture of the past and the present, all in one. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, everybody is, but in America, that's like 200 years. Sure, sure. Yeah, we, we forget, you know, our, our really our history. I mean, I have a friend of mine from China who says, oh, you Americans are just babies. You know, you, yeah. your history is only about that much. I think we're in the pimply teenager era. You're right. So let's talk about Bay Area theater. Um, De- Deborah, what brought you to California specifically? Did your family come here or did you come here on your own? I came here first. Okay. Uh, what brought me here? The dream. Ah. You know, I was uh, I was going for my MFA or the equal of what an MFA is here over mm-hmm. there in Peru, um, and I do have some um, extended family over here, and I was eighteen, nineteen. You know, and they're here in California, and mm-hmm. you know, when you come over there, and you know, Hollywood and all of that. Yeah. And so I was like. I guess I'll try it. You know, yeah. If I don't like it, I can always go back. Yeah. Well, you never lived in L.A., right? It's no. always been here? It's always been the Bay Area. Okay. No. Okay. And, uh, David, what, what specifically brought you here to the Bay? Because you could have run in anywhere. Um, yes. Well, I, I I married someone from the Bay Area. Okay. So that, Got that's, it. That's what brought me <laughs> here. Yeah. 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 Um, so let's talk about Generation uh, Theater. Um, do you guys specifically do Shakespeare or anything? No. You know, what's the, what is the mission? The mission. The mission is um, pretty much to uh, give 
give a new interpretation to, to text, to do some, to do new, to do a, get a new reading. Um, there, it, it's a little bit like um, the law. I, I, when I was in law school, I had a fantastic uh, legal philosophy professor named uh, um, uh, Richard Dworkin, and, and Dworkin's theory was part of his theory, because I don't want to misstate what he said, but was that the, the law is a little bit like literature and like theater, in, in the sense that you have a text and you have to interpret it. And you mm -hmm. have to interpret it, and the on, your duty, the only duty you have is to respect the integrity of the text. You cannot go out Mm -hmm. going to do something to that text that would destroy its integrity. Sure. And he was talking about the Constitution when we were talking yeah. about that. And, and I, it stayed with me. And, and in theater, what, we're, what I would like to do is, is the exact same thing. Take, take a text and see how far you can go with that text mm -hmm. without damaging the integrity of the text. Yeah. But within that limit, you still have an enormous amount of space mm -hmm. where you can go. Yeah. So that, that's pretty much the, that's the, that's the philosophical mission of the company. The, the social mission of the company is to bring as many people to the theater who would normally not go to the theater. Mm -hmm. so we try to, for example, we invite school kids uh, for free. Cool. Uh, we, try to, we try to reach Groups in society that would not, that have never been to the theater, that mm -hmm. would not normally go to the theater. Yeah. And we try to, to, to do productions that, that everybody manages to, to find meat in, that, yeah. that is not going to, to talk to just one section of the population, but that where everybody can find themselves. Yeah. We do a lot of, because I'm there, we do a lot of French theater okay. that, that I adapt. Uh, we always do texts that have, that have been, that are new. Mm -hmm. so that have been either new translations of plays mm -hmm. or new adaptations of plays. Okay. Uh, always. And so we did, for example, we did the three plays by Marcel Pagnol, which, which were, they're more famous as movies, Marius, mm -hmm. Fanny, and César, which are plays about Provence. Mm -hmm. And I translated them and made a new translation, and the, the, the Pagnol family approved the translation, etc., in English. And then the audience came out of there, and it was fabulous because we had in the audience we had people from everywhere. We had you know, people from Russia, people from China, people from Japan, etc. And people coming to me after the show and saying, "You know what? I, I have an uncle like this in China." And this, <laughs> yeah. and this was a, a mm -hmm. Provencal story, yeah. know, but. Everybody from wherever they were yeah. would recognize themselves in the place. So that's that's pretty much the mission in terms of reaching people. That's fantastic, um, and it sounds like it's not just Shakespeare. No, no, no not at all. Okay, okay. But well, I think Twelfth Night is the only Shakespeare we've ever done. Without. Yeah, uh, we've been talking a lot about diversity. You know, we've had companies. Even Shakespeare companies and uh, a lot of actors have said, "Hey, I'm looking for a company that will, let's say, hire someone um, who usually be white, but let's say you would cast someone who is black or whatever." Do you think about diversity 
uh, racial and sexual diversity uh, when you produce a play? I, I actually purposely don't think of diversity. I just, I just ask people if they want to play the part, mm-hmm. and the, the chips fall wherever yeah. they fall. So we well, hope that the diversity happens naturally. In, in, yeah. well, in, in Olivia's Kitchen, uh, Deborah, mm-hmm. who's from South America, plays Olivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joyce, who's of Chinese descent, plays, uh, plays Viola. Very nice. Um, uh, Abhishek. Abhishek, who is Indian, mm-hmm. But we, you know, I haven't said, oh, okay, we, I think we should have, you know, an Indian actor to play Orsino. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen like that. Yeah. But let's say if five people, you know, audition for one part, and, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, they're two equally great actors, and, you know, I don't know, one is a minority and another. But you, you're basically saying if it happens naturally, then. Well, I, I have to, there's mm-hmm. a, uh, something I have to say before that. I, I rarely, rarely, rarely do auditions. Oh, interesting. I don't like auditions. We were talking about that. I really yes, don't. they were, please, because it's well, definitely okay. something Okay, the, my take on auditions. As a director, uh, the only thing I learned from an audition is that somebody is capable of giving me a two-minute speech. Right. And, and, and I say, yeah, this person has the right instincts about the text or understands the text and, you know, can, can say... Uh, I am big contaminator. Properly, fine. How this person is going to behave and and merge with the company, that I don't know anything about that. And to me, that is actually the first thing that I look at. Mm-hmm. I Somebody who is excellent in an audition can totally ruin a production. Of course. If this yeah, person is, is mm-hmm. not doesn't blend with mm-hmm. us. So we don't work like that. So the way we work is that when we need somebody for a part, uh, there's a sort of general call to everybody. Do you know anybody who would be good in that part mm-hmm. and would be interested? And usually we come you know, come back with a few names or a number of names, and, and then we say, fine, you know, why don't you come and rehearse with us for a couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of weeks, let's talk and let's see if you're interested in us and mm-hmm. if we are interested in you and if it's a good match. And at the end of the couple of weeks, usually we don't even have to talk. It's just yeah. Either it's a good match or the person doesn't mm-hmm. come back and that's it. That sounds uh, great. I don't know if uh, as an actor, if someone were to say, hey, you know, we have this part. Can you rehearse with us for a few weeks and then we'll make a decision? Not a few. Not a few. Just good. Rehearsals. Two rehearsals? Okay. Um, I suppose I could. I mean, would that be better than rehearsal? I mean, how do you think about that, Norman? As an no, actor, I've seen it. I mean, mm-hmm. people sometimes will call it a workshop. Yeah. Where you're, we're going to come in and we're going to work a little bit and we'll see where we're going. I've definitely done shows where mm-hmm. when we got involved with the production, we communicated the production. And yeah. what that meant was something that evolved. And yeah. And actually, when I think about when we did what we did for Men in Paris, we sort of did the same thing. I mean, there were people who we auditioned and brought in, but there are people who were involved in our readings, and we were like, okay, well, if you like it and you've been in part of the reading and you haven't ran away yet, okay, you're in. And we know that we can work with that person. So, I mean, I definitely agree with you that um, an audition shows you that somebody can memorize something. Maybe their facility was text. Maybe. 
Um, and that they might be able to show up on time. <laughs> uh, beyond that, you don't really know what they are. And the worst example of it I know is I know an actress. I've known her for years. And um, I hadn't seen her in a few years. And I saw her at a general audition. And she was fantastic. And I was like, holy cow, what happened? So the next show she was doing, I went to see. Because I, I, I love the play. Um, it's a Bluesford, Alabama Sky. Beautiful play. Um, and I wanted to see, with this new skill that I thought she had acquired, what she would do. Oh, my goodness. No, all her bad habits were on stage. They were amplified on stage. And she had hired somebody to coach her to do an audition. And they basically made her do the audition. I know who it was. He made her do the audition the way he would do the audition, the piece. Yeah. So she came on as basically a carbon copy of him yeah. audition. And so that meant that season, she probably got a lot of attention. Once people worked with her, it fell off immediately because it's like, no, this isn't what you actually are capable of. Yeah, yeah, that happens. I wanted to say something about um, Generation <coughs> Theater's process. So they, we only rehearse once a week on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way how I was brought in was how David explained. Um, a friend asked, you know, and I was like, yeah. David and I talked on the phone. I went in. Uh, this was with for the Miser mm-hmm. last year. Um, and read the script. And pretty much, I think after that, I was free to go if I didn't have any. And if I wanted to stay, I could. Um, and then I came back the following week. And then we put the play on its feet. We mm-hmm. rehearsed it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we talked a little bit. I, it, it was, it's almost like you have the first rehearsal, mm-hmm. and then they may ask you, oh, can you stick around to see if you can read for another part? Mm-hmm. And then there's callbacks, right? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been to auditions where I've been called back three times for the same role. So it's, I'm, I'm not trying to say one way it's better than the other, but it's similar in a way. Yeah. You know, it's like, so you're not rehearsing days for two weeks, it's just twice, um, and it's good amount of time for both parties mm-hmm. to know, yes, I want to be involved with these, mm-hmm. um, or no. Yeah. You know. Has it, has it, how has the rehearsal process been? Has it been comfortable? Have you, are you enjoying the process? I am. Cool. I'm having a blast with these play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's funny. Um, you know, it's a lot of work. Sure. Uh, because it's Shakespeare, mm-hmm. so we're putting in a lot of hours on, on that Sundays. But um, what I love about this group is it's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, David is the director, and he does have the final say, but he hears you. Yeah. You know, you're the one playing the part, mm-hmm. you know, and he hears what you have to say and how you feel about the, the, the character and mm-hmm. what your ideas are. And if they're aligned with the you know, main vision of the play and director, mm-hmm. he'll tell you, yeah, you know, that can work, or, you know, that might not work here, but maybe, you know, we'll do it this way. Sure. You know, I was struck with um, when you had talked about in- interpreting text, and if you are true to the interpretation, if you're true to, I guess, the intent of the artist who wrote it, uh, the playwright, then, you know, you're on the right track. What struck me, especially when you talked about law, because I work for um, the district attorney's office, and what happens in court a lot is the defense attorney will say, well, I interpret the law this way, and the prosecutor will say, well, no, I interpret it this way. Right. So do you run into that with theater where... Right, because what I said is that is 
you, you have to stay true to the not to the interpretation because there is no one interpretation mm -hmm. to the integrity of yeah. the text. But who judges the integrity? I guess that's what I mean. No, nobody. The text itself okay. generates its own integrity. So, for example, uh, let's take we did Tartuffe several okay. times. Molière, right? And we took we took different different takes on Tartuffe. Mm -hmm. One take that I took the first time, first production we did, I said, look, let's all look at the text very, very carefully, we, as closely as we can, mm -hmm. and find evidence in the text that Tartuffe is a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's find those, make a list. Where does it say Tartuffe is a hypocrite? in what he says, in what he does, in what the others said, mm -hmm. etc. We ended up with a list that showed that actually the only place where Tartuffe is described as a hypocrite is in the other character's mouth. But what he, what, in what he says mm -hmm. and what he does, yeah. he never does anything that is particularly hypocritical. He's yeah. in love with all Yeah. And Norman, you did Tartuffe, didn't you? Yeah. And and Tartuffe, Tartuffe is you know he's a guy he's a guy he's a scam artist. Mm -hmm. okay? He gets people to like him and to give him stuff because he's probably miserable. Yeah. So Orgon, who loves him, gives him his house, wants to marry him to his daughter, mm -hmm. and then all the others hate him mm -hmm. because he's going to marry the daughter. Yeah. Whom he never asked for, mm -hmm. Orgon sort of forced forced her on him mm -hmm. and on her. Yeah. And he is, let's assume, genuinely in love mm -hmm. or attracted to Orgon's wife. Mm -hmm. okay, where is the hypocrisy? That there's no particular hypocrisy. So I right. said, okay. So that's what we're going to show. We're going to do a Tartuffe, who was played by Topher Clark as, at the time, guy, a guy who you know could be on the. the cover of a magazine, mm -hmm. extremely, extreme. We didn't do the Tartuffe who is, you know, bent and, and scheming. Sure, and, sure, and sure. With shifty eyes. Yeah. We did the Tartuffe who was like a playboy. Yeah, and yeah. Came, and he was a scam artist. He seduces everybody because mm -hmm. he's very attractive, etc. Mm -hmm. That, the integrity of that mm -hmm. was that there's nothing in Molière's text yeah. that says that he is not like yeah. So it's allowed. Uh, yeah, I totally understand. And, and I guess if I were an actor in uh, Generation Theater and I had an interpretation, I have to justify it with the text. Yes. Yes, that, that totally makes text, sense. The text is your limit. It's, yes. It's, it's, you cannot go further than that. You cannot make Tartuffe, for example, a liar if the text doesn't show that he's sure. a liar. So sure. That's the integrity. Mm -hmm. But within that limit, mm -hmm. it's it's open. Yeah, no, I totally understand. And, and so uh, that that's what we do, and we try to. It, it's very much like music. Mm -hmm. Bach wrote the notes, but look at how many different interpretations of Bach you have. And so we're trying, in our very humble way, we're trying to do Glenn Gould. Mm -hmm. okay, when Glenn Gould started playing wow. Bach, everybody said. Whoa, I, this is completely new. We had never looked at, you know, this partita like this. Mm -hmm. right? That's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to do some things that people come and see 
uh, talk to you for the advisor, and they said, well, I've never thought of that, but yes, it's a possible interpretation of the advisor, and you know what? It's new. Mm -hmm. It's not the old, the, uh, yeah. always the same kind of icons and pictures and, that yeah. we have of characters and I'm, I'm always interested in how the style of direction, the directors. We've had a couple of directors uh, sit in this seat. And like Susan Evans, she will immediately block everything and set the parameters and then let the actress sort of take over. We've had other uh, directors like Richard Harder of Off-Broadway West basically say, listen, just come in, rehearse, rehearsal, do whatever you want to do. Let me see what your interpretation is, and then I'll fix things. What is your interpret? How do you approach a play or the or rehearsal process? Have my take on that. Um, well, my interpretation of his uh, directorial ways, mm -hmm. he allows us to have the freedom okay. to express ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, again, with the integrity of the text. Sure. So if we're coming out of those lines, mm -hmm. he'll bring us back. Um, he's not. You know, he, he has a vision, and he, he's set on his ways on some things. Mm -hmm. uh, but we start with the readings, and we get up and see, we just try, see where, mm -hmm. how you feel, you know, on, on the uh, in the rehearsal room, and where it's taking you. Um, so it's almost like, it, it's a, a moment of discovery mm -hmm. that we're all together in there. That's my interpretation. Um, don't leave the room, but you no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, when David is in the room, sometimes as an actor, you're like, oh, the director is running late or something. You know, I'm just going to do these the way I wanted to do it just for these for, for a little mm -hmm. bit, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. um, I don't feel like that with, with David. Sure. You know, it's like uh, he'll hear you. If you have an idea or something and you want to do it, he'll hear you and he'll see it. Mm -hmm. And then he'll tell you, yes, it works or it doesn't. And then it, he'll he'll ask you questions or he'll have a conversation with you that it's going to make you understand why mm -hmm. it has to be the other way. Sure. You know, it has to click with you as an actor. Um, he does uh, have a say on the costumes. Um I don't know. You want to... Well, I, so, no, I, I have a totally different question. So go for it. Well, the, the only thing I would like to say is that I, I, I've, been, I've, uh, I've been helped a lot by directors that I've seen uh, in Europe and the, the companies that I love. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I went for 11 years, I went to Stratford every year uh, to see what they were doing and to the National Theatre. Yeah, it was close enough, Paris to London and Paris to, to Stratford. It's, it's fairly easy. So I would just you know, book as many tickets I, as I could over five days and go and see everything I could see. <laughs> and I, you know, people like, like Trevenon and people like that so were, were really inspiring. In France, the, the company that I found the most inspiring was a company, a, a theater called the Théâtre du Soleil. And, and the Théâtre du Soleil, which was directed and is directed by Aryan Nushkin, who's a fantastic director and a fantastic uh, translator and adapt, uh, adapter of Shakespeare as well, um, they, it, 
was a, a company that worked differently. The people were in the company on a permanent basis. Everybody was a volunteer. And the company was the, the training ground for actors. So people could come without having ever done anything and become part of the company and work. And Anushkin made people work on a production for 12 to 18 months mm. before it was released. Mm. I, again, in a very, in a very humble way, I, I, I used some, some of that. We rehearsed long, over a long period of time. Mm. doesn't mean that in total number of rehearsal hours we do more than the others. Mm -hmm. But instead of doing, say, I don't know, 60 hours over three weeks, we're going to do 60 hours over six months. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the reason why I do that is because I believe that there is, um, there is virtue in an actor spending a long time thinking about his or her character. Mm -hmm. And that the result is different. Because what happens is that over time, without my doing anything, mm -hmm. it matures. And the actors come up with ideas, mm -hmm. with, with details, with, and they end up at the end of the six months with a, a performance that is much more finely crafted than what they would do over the same number of rehearsal hours within the three weeks before sure. night. Yeah. Because they may not have time because they're working or whatever, and if you try to crunch when so you, much... When you crunch, yeah. you, the actors, me included, we focus on my lines. I want to make sure that I'm not going to yeah. screw up on a night. night. Yeah. My blocking, I want to make sure I'm going to be at the right place. Yeah. Okay? And, and that becomes almost obsessional, and thinking really about what's going on in, in the character sure. is, is comes second yeah. because, of course, it's not an emergency. And so we try to eliminate that, mm -hmm. get to the point where people are comfortable with the lines, they're comfortable with the blocking, etc. but what comes out is building more of the character. Yeah. Go ahead, Norman. I had a question, but um, you had a question, too. Uh, my question, just a, just a basic question. Have you both been involved with the company from the beginning, or when did you guys... I, uh, I joined last year. Yeah, it seems like I've been there forever, but yeah, my first one. Yeah, I joined with the Meister last year, um, this month, 2018. Yeah. And how long has the company been around? 11 years. Wow! I'm not at Fort Mason. Five years at Fort Mason. Uh -huh. I, as I was telling Reg before we, we opened, we've been around for 11 years. We're, our audience has been incredibly faithful. We have people come to our performances now who were at the first performance and I've seen all of oh, them. Mm -hmm. And uh, but the media right. are just beginning to act as if we were in existence. Yeah. <laughs> well hopefully we'll you know we'll do all that we can to, to push push well, a generation theater out. Just what you were saying before, if your audience is if you it sounds a lot of theater companies have like um, an ethnic community that they're focusing on. I mean, I know, for instance, in the East Bay, there are at least two or three Iranian theater mm -hmm. groups. But it sounds like you get—is there a target audience? Are you are you getting the word out to immigrant communities the way that maybe other theater companies are? If you're getting that level of diversity. 
interested in. Just wondering how that works. We we are. There's no deliberate plan to do that. We the, the only thing that's deliberate is that since I, I we have two di- two directors. There's, okay. there's me and and Pascal Kudera, okay. and we the company has a, a another side which is to produce French contemporary new. Okay. Sorry, new French plays uh-huh. in French with super titles. Wow. So, for example, last winter we, and for that, very often we're at the Sheldon. Uh-huh. And last winter we did Adieu, Monsieur Hoffman, which is a, a French play that was discovered like 12 months before at the Avignon uh-huh. Theatre Festival. Mm-hmm. And we did the, the, we premiered it on the American continent nice. in French with. English super titles, uh-huh. and it worked marvelously. That it, we, we were we were of Every performance was sold out. That's cool. Awesome. And and a lot of the audience was non-French speaking. Uh-huh. So we're trying to make people discover contemporary French theater through <laughs> that. And that Pascal does a lot of. of Wow, that is fantastic. We're hit the one hour mark, but I did have one quick question before we get into shout outs and all that sort of stuff. And thank you guys for coming. It's it's just a wonderful uh, discussion. When you were talking about the process of, uh, you know, spanning things out once a week, I would love that as an actor. I'd be like, wow, I have this much time to get into the text, to get into my character. To actually speak to, let's say, I'm a, let's say you and I, Deborah, are working on a piece. I could say, hey, what are you doing Wednesday? You know, we have rehearsal on Sunday, but let's get together Wednesday and let's talk about this sort of stuff. We have the time to do that. But it takes maturity of an actor. You have to have very mature actors. The question is, have you ever been burned by an actor who, I guess, took the time to, I don't know, slough, slough off or not take the text seriously or the process seriously? Um, it, it, it has happened extremely rarely. Okay. It has happened. You don't have to mention any was, names. It was exceptional. No, no, I'm not going to mention names. <laughs> it, was, it was really exceptional, and usually it came for either immaturity or an overinflated ego. ego sure. I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. But typically, I start out by explaining to the, the new actors and say, you know, this is what we do once a week, and, and during once a week, all I can do is really help you with the general mm-hmm. interpretation of the scene and understanding your character. But then it's your responsibility to workshop together. And yes. you guys organize that. And I'm, I, if you ask me to be there, I'll be there. But you know, if, you're not going to need me more than once because I'll tell you everything I have to tell you. And mm-hmm. then you're on your own. Yeah. You'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And you come up with ideas. And then the following Sunday, show me. And we'll talk about them. Yeah. And that's the way the company has been working for 10 years. And it reminds me so much of class. I mean, I remember being in both NYU and also Duke Elton School of the Arts, where <clears throat> we would be given an assignment. We would have to sort of put it together as if it were a mini, you know, let's say a scene. And we're putting it together, the blocking, all of that sort of stuff, and finding the beats and the objectives. And then we present it to the, the teacher or the professor. And, you know, they'll say yes, yay or nay or whatever. So it brings me back to that class. And, you know, there's some actors who don't want to go back to school or whatever, but I sort of enjoy that, that sort of process where... And it's actually, it's, it, it's in those meetings between actors themselves mm-hmm. that, that the actors figure out where, 
what part of their characters they do not completely understand, sure. where the problems are, and it helps bring all that to the surface, and mm-hmm. then we resolve that at the Sunday. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, we resolve it the Sunday sure. rehearsal. Norman, as, just a quick question before we jump into shout-outs. Would you find as a director, like in your experiences, that may be the main problem, that actors don't have the time to really dive into the specifics or whatever, because work schedules and this and that and... They're, they're just, it's different animals. It's different ways to approach things. Yeah. Because, um, in fact, before I came today, I, I was on the phone with an old colleague. Um, we were in college together. And talking about sort of the state of theater, but I was specifically calling him because I want to hear if he's available for a reading. And the, we're going to do it at a, the Brooklyn Preserve. Mm-hmm. The Brooklyn Preserve. Oh, this is the Talavera piece, right? Yes. Yeah. They want us to bring in, they want playwrights to bring in their piece, their fresh piece, and just throw it on the table, almost literally throw it on the table in front of a bunch of people and say, okay, let's read this mm-hmm. and see how it goes. There are plays where you could do that with, but there are a lot of plays that have various structures and mechanisms that take some time mm-hmm. to understand, and particularly comedies. Yeah. Uh, and this, I would say, this has an almost vaudeville, vaudevillian mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. to it, which means it's a lot about timing, yeah. about setup and you know payoff, and and you have to understand that. You have to understand that the characters are now intentionally going off on a tangent yeah. to build towards something. That is then going to pay off. If you don't create that build, then all it does is just seem like it rambles on and on and on. Sure. So I wanted to get a couple of uh, uh, actors who are familiar with Richard's work <coughs> to come in um, just to, and I said, we'll get together one time before this and we'll read through it and then just know we're going to sit at the table with a bunch of people who are seeing the script for the first time and we may be throwing some people in. So I really just want you guys there. I'm going to have a couple of pros. Yeah. And that's, it's a different way of approaching. Yeah. When you know that you're working in that tight schedule, then you have to prepare to work in a certain way. And definitely when we were doing Forbidden in Paris, that would come up where you'd say, I see these problems. I'm like, I do too. <laughs> Most of the time, if you mentioned four problems, I saw at least three of them and already thought about how I was going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I have this much time. So I know I can solve two of those problems. One of those problems, I think I've got to fix. I think that'll happen in the other one. I'm hoping it'll fix itself because mm-hmm. I don't know that we have time. Yeah. And a lot of times, actors already know what the problems are. They don't need the director to tell them. And a lot of times, they're working within themselves. And sometimes waiting to get to the theater to work these things out. And if you have more time, these things can get resolved quicker, better than later. Yeah. This process yes. is there are so many pieces that I love that I would love to have the opportunity to say, let's throw this out in front of some folks, and we'll have a little bit of discussion, but let's just throw it out here and see how it feels. And then we can think about where we might go next with it if we were going to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that to me is exciting to, to create an environment where you have that possibility sounds incredible. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear it. This is Olivia's Kitchen, or What the Cook Saw on Twelfth Night, directed by David Valer and Ket, is that Ket? Ket Waters. And uh, it'll be uh, March the 9th through the 17th. The 7th. I'm sorry, March the 7th. That's what, that's what I meant. March the 7th through the 17th uh, at the Southside Theater, Fort Mason Center in San Francisco. And uh, it was fantastic having you guys. Shout outs. Yeah. That's awesome. Shout outs, birthdays. 
so yeah, I'm having trouble with my phone. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, so uh, normally I post to the birthday people for the week and say, hey, happy birthday. And, and if you have something coming up, let us know. And apparently didn't post. Also, my first picture. That's why I was jumping up while we were talking. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. My first picture didn't come through. <clears throat> so, but I do have my list. Um, Darren Wilkerson, somebody I went to college with, I believe his mother's name is Dr. Margaret Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. She's known as a theater um, historian. Yeah. Um, anyway, he and I went to college together, so his birthday's coming up this week. Argo Thompson, who is uh, up in the North Bay doing a lot of theater. And it's funny, I am on the North Bay, there's a North Bay Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And I'm on that, and I almost never look because I just don't go up there that much. But mm-hmm. Argo's a huge force up there. His birthday's coming up. Um, some people that I know you know. Uh, Deirdre Renee Dragunov is somebody I met at the Alley. Mm. Um, Alley is a piano bar here in Oakland, and I go regularly. And there was this beautiful young black woman, and I'm here to sing. So, yes, you're a beautiful young black woman, but... Eventually, we started talking, and then one night, she said she was so excited, she was coming from a rehearsal. And I said, really? What, what are you rehearsing? And she says, it's this new play. It's called The America Play. I'm like, it's a remount. And she said, yeah, it's a 10-year remount. She's like, yeah. Is Ronnie in it? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, is, oh, and I know um, Kathleen Ridley is in it because I um, recommended her for the show. She's like, oh, my God. So she goes to rehearsal the next night. She comes back. She's like, she said, I walked in, and as soon as I said, Norman G says hi, rehearsal stopped. And that was how Deirdre and I found out that we were both involved in theater. Um, but she's amazing. She sings. She acts. She's also an amazing uh, costumer. we got to get her on down there. And pastry shop. Well, she hasn't been doing theater for a while. She's um. She got into a pastry job, and she works at, like, the top-end restaurants Mm -hmm. in in the Bay Area. She had taken some time off. A friend said she needed help. She came in. Help turned into her, ended up taking over the job. They fired her friend and Mm -hmm. asked her if she'd stay. Mm -hmm. So that's where her focus has been. Uh, Tim Niffen is an actor in the Bay Area. Last time I saw him was at the Aurora in a play with Elizabeth Carter. Okay. Incredible. Uh, Baruch Paras. Hernandez is uh, a poet and writer <coughs> who I know through San Francisco Theater. Um, Ian Walker, who we had. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is also an amazing director, playwright, yeah. actor. I don't think we've had Ian Walker on, but we know oh, him. Oh, I thought we'd had him. We, he, we he, tried to get him. He was in the second retro of Four Men. He did James. Right. Yeah. Uh, he's yes, fantastic. He was yeah. doing us a favor because mm-hmm. he's so not a James. Exactly. <laughs> um, Gary Graves, who I'm sure Gary is right on. Uh, Jeff Dunn is, um, he is, I didn't know this, a composer. Okay. And he and his wife, Susan, uh, do readings in Alameda. Um, and for Black History Month, they're Very doing nice. um, August Wilson. Cool. Um, I think it's Jim of the Ocean. Hmm. So that's coming up. Uh, Daniel Martin. Danny Martin, right on. Yeah. Um, Luis Valls is somebody else I went to college with, and he has been working with the No Space um, Theater of Yugen, Okay. Um, doing Japanese theater. Yeah, we, uh, we totally, I know we talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, that's okay. Like, okay, yay. I mean, I'm a black guy. I was doing Japanese theater. Mm-hmm. So that gives me hope. We had the same training. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Jim Kleinman, who runs Playground, um, mm-hmm. is the executive director and an amazing force in bringing new works to the Bay Area. So uh-huh. these are our birthday kids for the month. Happy birthday. Yep, and I'll give you mine. Um, 
a good friend of mine, Nancy Tung, who is running for DA for uh, SF, the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, her birthday is today, and I've been promoting her. Yes, um, Raymond Ray, uh, he is a proud transgendered uh, male who uh, directed The Marriage of Benton Boo, and the posters right behind Norman. Um, and that was, uh, we did that in 2001, and it was, it was such a success. People needed to laugh uh, during that horrible time. And so uh, Raymond's birthday it was on Friday. Um, on Sunday, I think, uh, Norman, you you know about this, but you allowed me to do it. Helena Alvarez, her birthday is uh, tomorrow. Oh, no, I, didn't, I didn't have it. I oh, the, shame on you. Yeah. Helena, she was our Fatima and Julia Wright. Right. Amazing actress. Also tomorrow, Christine McComer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, she's an amazing awesome. actress and an amazing singer. Yes. Just an incredible range. And I've worked with her. We did Grey Gardens uh, at the DMT uh, about the Bouvier family, Bouvier women. Uh, let's see, who else do I have? Gary Graves, you took that, Danny Martin. Also on Thursday, Rachel Deathridge. Um, she and I acted in Candide. She has an amazing voice. Um, she's an actress and an opera singer, uh, and an incredibly talented woman. And I'm not sure where she is. She recently got married, and she, I think she moved away from the Bay. I hope she remains on stage because she was an incredible presence, incredible talent. And that's all that I have. Uh, shows. Yes, you guys have any things you want to promote? Feel free to jump in. Uh, we've got the continuing honky. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just a little bit title. Role Players Ensemble Theater, January 31st through February the 10th. Uh, so tomorrow is the last day, and oh. Terrence Smith and Kari Moy is in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the history of World War II has been extended through March. March. March the 9th, that's right. So, and uh, that's a one-man John show, John Fisher, yeah. who runs Theater Rhino, but he's doing it at the March. At the March. March, right. yeah. And um, Everyday Alice is that, coming up. Um, the show that I'm doing right now at Piano Fight, uh, we open, well, we preview next weekend. Um, so 7 o'clock shows, it's so funny. Every time somebody says, well, I'm coming, I say 7 o'clock, and I see the look in their eyes, and I was like, you're going to be there at 8 for no, <laughs> uh, Utopia Theater um, at the Piano Fight. Yep. Uh, also, I'll promote Our Wilderness. Uh, there are two shows. We had Cynthia Lagozinski on, and she is in uh, two shows that she wanted to uh, promote. Our Wilderness at the Douglas Morrison Theater. That um, opens February the 14th through March the 3rd at the Douglas Morrison. Also, Sojourn, the Pear Theater, is doing that. That's March the 15th mm. through April the 7th. Sojourn is in Sojourner? Or? Uh, well, let's, let's, I'm going to look at the... Uh, as soon as the uh, the way web page pops cool. up, Sojourner Truth would be wonderful. Oh, okay. Well, um, it, it doesn't link. In any case, uh, Sojourn. Well, we'll find out what it is. I'm sure. I'm sure the because it doesn't open until March the fifteenth. Uh, I don't think the web page is up just yet. Uh, what else? Uh, Gal- Galatea. That's a new rock musical uh, produced by a company called Counterpulse. Oh, yeah. Eliza Bovin. And uh, Allison Sasha Ross are in the show. Um, they haven't been on the A yet, but uh, I've worked with both of the women. Um, Eliza uh, is an actress and a model, and I've worked with her with the uh, Musical Cafe. And Allison, uh, we, uh, she's also an alumni of NYU, and she, we, her and I were in Hella Gobbler. And so that was fun. And also, last but certainly not least, um, Generation Theater, Olivia's Kitchen, um, Please see that March the 7th through the 17th. 
And uh, that's going to be fantastic. Is there a website link for it? Yeah, and I also really quickly wanted to mention, yes. I don't know when this is going to air, but we are currently holding a fundraising. Oh, cool. Um, and it is on the page, generationtheater.com. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we appreciate anything that can come our way. Theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Yeah. yeah, I'll have the link. No one needs to type it. Yeah. But we'll have the link. You can just click on the link, generationtheater.com. Not dot org. So just click on that. And uh, I saw another show that you guys are. Yes, the French show. It's the French God of Carnage by Yasmina Reza. I did that at the Shelton. It will be at the Shelton. Yeah. I got to do that. That'll be in the fall, October the 10th through November the 2nd. Yeah, Matt and I were in the show. So, yeah, that will be in the fall. Yeah, October the 10th through November the 2nd, 2019. All right, yeah, and we'll pu- we'll push that in the fall. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have a good time? Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, great. A wonderful, wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad that the both of you, especially in the rain. Well, it was raining, now it's sunny, sunny. so. Perfect. <laughs> for the moment, yes. Yeah, exactly. All right. We need my- the rain. Exactly, we do. Oh, one last thing. So I have another podcast called I'm an American, too. I was hoping you would mention this. Exactly, because I just realized that the both of you are not American-born. If you are free, of course, you're in a show right now. You're rehearsing for a show. But if, you, um, if you're if you interested, I'll just, you know, you don't have to say yes or no. But I would love to interview each one of you. Basically, I interview people who are not American to get their take on American life, especially in the age of Trump. I've interviewed folks from England, from um, Alan Coyne. He's uh, he's originally from um, from. Ireland. Oh, wow. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know that. Um, Adam Simpson is from um, Canada. And I've interviewed folks from China, from Thailand, uh, from different areas just to find out, you know, because as Americans, we take for granted, you know, what we have here. Uh, and also, you know, and where how it's viewed. And how it's being viewed. And I'm, I'm always interested in hearing the non-Americans take on what American life is. So I'm an American too. That's a podcast and I'm, you know, letting yeah, we'll you know. Yeah. And also I will, um, you know, post that uh, on the link for folks who want to listen to that. All right. Here's my blurb. You can find the yay on the Apple podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. Basically any podcasting app that you have, there are tons of them coming out. Just search for the yay and you'll find us. If you listen to your podcast on a desktop or a laptop, you can find the Yay on iTunes. Just click on iTunes, click on Store, use the search engine on the upper right-hand side and search for the Yay, and you'll find us. For Android users, download the SoundCloud app or just go on SoundCloud.com and search for the Yay. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. I'm at Red Space Clay. And I'm Hoosier Hoosier. <laughs> Uh, Debbie and uh, David, do you have a uh, Twitter account, Facebook? Any, I anything don't else? use Twitter, but I do have Facebook and Instagram. On Instagram, I'm under at D-E-B-M-U-7-9. Okay. I can put a link on that. How about you, David? Uh, we have Generation Theater has a Facebook page. Okay. Sure. That's fine. I will go ahead and post that if you guys want to post. And also, Debbie, I want to say thank you because you actually found you or you found us because you listened to the EA podcast and asked to be on. Yes. And so we always ask people, hey, if you want to, you know, post your comments and whatever, and you did that, and that's why you're here. And now if anyone, any actors, directors want, 